pretty. I always like this logo. No, it's okay. As logos go, I mean, beats new Regency. Title sequence, I guess, was actually was something I had been interested in doing for a number of years. I just started thinking if you see a, a street scene or you see uh, a forest or whatever, and you see titles over it, is it meant to imply that the titles are actually there and are visible to the people that are sort of meandering through the frame? Or are, is it supposed to be, is it an internal monologue? You know, is it supposed to be that the audience is supposed to sort of, they understand that those letters just appear to give them information above and beyond what the movie's going to give them. But I started wondering, well, if you're going to see New York City and you're going to see letters, what if they just felt like they were in three-dimensional space, available there to be photographed. And you gotta kinda stay away from 42nd Street because that's where all the Spider-Man titles are. And you know, you don't have permits yet to put up your titles on, on 7th Avenue. And But I sort of like the idea of, uh, you know, is, is this supposed to be real or is this supposed to be a thought superimposed over the, the city? This is a different kind of movie for me. And one of the things that I liked about it was, and the thing that I like about David Kep's writing in general, is that there's, um, there's not precious. And I have a tendency to make things precious anyway. So I like the kind of deep-rooted respect for narrative freight training that David has, and also his complete disregard for those precious flourishes. He just wants to get on with it. He just wants to, you know, and it's not, it's it's popcorn movie making, but it's also, but it's good. It's like good B-movie stuff. And B-movies are kind of, in a weird way, the most memorable movies. I mean, I, you know, I probably have a more vivid memory of The Road Warrior than I do of Gandhi. And I think it's because there are certain kind of lurid concerns that B-movies just naturally have that make you kind of, you're traveling sort of at lockstep with them. And I had not made a movie that had that kind of narrative, like make sure everybody's, everybody's with you. Even though there's a lot of dramatic irony and, and juxtaposition of, you know, there's a lot of times when we overlap stuff in a movie like this just to make sure points get made. But you're trying to make it always feel like it's happening in, in real time. And I had never done that before, and, and I felt like this would be a good movie to try that with because of the constraints of it, because it, so, it was so consciously limited. There were so few things you could kind of cut away to, and there was never a moment in the script where it was like, meanwhile, sunrise over Central Park. It was like, you know, it was the next procedural thing. The guy has to tape the hose onto the tank. You have to bring the tank upstairs. You have to bring the drill. You got to make sense out of the how many tool bags he's carrying, what tool bags have woodworking tools in them, What which ones have HVAC, you know, and you're kind of thinking in these little, it's a micromanagement issue. So that was my reason for trying it, was it was something that was infinitely controllable and, you know, in terms of the fractal geometry of how you could divide and subdivide the pixels that go in to make up the movie, it could be in an as it turned out, an inordinately complicated 
movie about people trapped in a closet. But the initial notion was this could be good, sassy, page-turning B-movie stuff. You don't have to pay the price on the tag. I mean, I definitely felt after Fight Club that I had just spent two years of my life sort of waiting for trucks to be unloaded. There were so many locations and so many um, eighth-of-a-page scenes in Fight Club that it seemed to me like I spent my whole time in a canvas chair watching you know, trucks leveled and makeup rooms and, you know, honey wagons connected. So I thought, you know, I'd really like to do something that's kind of simple and all takes place. Well, I, I mean, I didn't know that I was, I wasn't actively looking for a script that all took place in one house, but certainly that element of it didn't uh, dissuade me. We had this sort of idea of Anne Magnuson by way of Anna Wintour. We had a special piece of jewelry made for her that's around her neck in this entire sequence. It's a little bit of gold script that says, in escrow. <laughs> and of course, it never gets seen. This sequence was fairly elaborately planned out to even pre where the mirrors in the sequence would be so that we could have tape marks on the floor before the camera even showed up. So we could just go, okay, the camera goes to here and then the actors go to here. And, and we had it pretty well worked out and, and that part of it was the, was the least of our problems. Previsualization is something that requires a degree of intestinal fortitude that I don't even know if I have anymore, but it freaks people out initially. And then I think actors see it for what it can be, which is, um, a very clear indication of what it is that you want and need from them. And in that respect, I think it can be very liberating for an actor, but it can also create a lot of unnecessary frustration because I think actors like to be part of deciding where they go and when. As ridiculous as that sounds, they um, have ideas about where on what line they should cross. And, and so you have to kind of, you know, do both. You have to sort of be flexible about, you know, what they feel they can bring to it and, and what you're... But this movie is not a... Um, it's not a Bergman movie, you know. It's not really about, you know, living the moment as much as it is about passing the information succinctly. So in that respect, I think it's kind of a amalgam of you know, what really talented people in front of the camera bring to an inordinate amount of preparation behind the camera. The relationship between a director and an actor is so often just, you know, showing them the back of their, your hand and letting them sniff it so they know that you're not trying to hurt them or, you know, and, and to have the final cut sequence and be able to put it in a VHS tape and show them and they go, Oh my God, you know how stuff cuts together. That looks great. I, I, I'd love to be part of that. And you go, well, you are. So let's go out on stage and let's do it. Ian Buchanan, who plays the realtor here, I had just agreed to start Panic Room and I was on a plane. And I looked over and I saw him and I said, I know that guy. He was in this music video I did. And he would be perfect. So I went up to him and said, you know, I, I just read the script and there's a role in it that's way beneath your dignity, but you'd be perfect for it. And you should give me a call when you get back to L.A. So that's how that came about. That door is a hazard. 
Initially, we'd cast a young woman to play, uh, young woman, we'd cast a girl to play Kristen's part, who was very feminine and, and girlish and all of those things, and just irritated me beyond belief. And I saw Kristen on tape and saw a Porsche commercial that she'd done. And I just really liked her. I just thought she was had a great tomboyish, sort of androgynous quality. And she's kind of a ridiculously honest actor. I mean, she's sort of not an actor. She's a movie actor in the, the truest sense. She's just kind of is able to just be. She's not a performer. She'll never have those child star issues. She'll probably never end up on E! Entertainment Television. That shot's a pretty good example of what we were trying to do initially in the setup of the movie is it's not the theatricality of it as much as it is. You're going to be granted access to viewing this place and these people in their life in a way that is uh, all access backstage passes to everything that you can possibly see. So that's kind of a, a visual theme in the photography of the movie was to come up with a way you know, either CG or, or cutaway sets or being able to pull walls away where we kind of let the audience know the camera can go anywhere. Obviously, to get that angle, you'd have to be in the neighbor's basement. But the notion is to kind of begin to underline this idea that the camera is, is free of the constraints that the characters in the movie have to deal with. Fuck them. The set was designed by Arthur Max, who uh, I'd worked with on a lot of commercials and had done seven with. I called him, gave him the script to Panic Room, and he, I think initially he was expecting more. He'd just finished Gladiator, and so I said, you know, fantastic work on Gladiator. Here's, here's a movie I'd like you to consider. It all takes place in a living room and a bedroom and a hallway. But, you know, he's such a kind of an architecture nut and, you know, storytelling through architecture, the supporting the characters through the surroundings that I think he really kind of warmed to the idea of what Kep had sort of designed. You know, he's a perfect guy. You know, never lost his patience. Even when I told him, you gotta build it all as a house and I gotta be able to move any wall and make it go anywhere and I gotta be able to put a camera wherever I want. You know, when you actually see the set being constructed and there's all this steel around it to hold up these fake walls just so they can be able to be moved out of the way at the drop of a hat. It was quite an engineering feat. So I'll just take a cab and meet him there. Is that what he said? This was a scene that initially was very different in the first draft of the script and in the draft that we started shooting with Nicole. I think it's a... A much better kind of... I, I sort of like the teenager aspect of it a lot more. It's a little more caustic, and you can see Kristen sort of pushing the boundaries of Jody's authority and sort of letting her in on some of the things she may not be aware of now that she and her ex-husband are not under the same roof that their plans are being made, and, and her daughter's life is being sort of apportioned in a different way. And I like that. I like the reveal that there are conversations that she's having, that Kristen's having with her father that Jody's not privy to. I thought that was a, a nice thing that Kep did for us. We really wanted to have the whole diabetic thing very, very 
subtle as much as possible. And so the like the little red cross on the on the refrigerator is it's there, but <laughs> if you blink. This watch, by the way, that's supposed to be like a it's supposed to be a monitor for blood sugar level. The prototypes that exist, I think it actually has to puncture the skin <laughs> in order for it to work. I don't know that it it doesn't actually exist. We took a wild surmise at where the technology might go. There's people are attempting to do these things with the with these blood sugar monitors. Somebody showed me a watch that had like little like fangs on it. You're like supposed to wear it on your wrist. These are real family photographs of Kristen Stewart. I always find it irksome when you see a family in movies and they have photographs of themselves and it looks like they were literally taken 72 hours before the, the movie <laughs> started shooting. So we asked Kristen's mother if we could borrow some of her baby pictures. This is a shot we ended up doing a number of times until we finally ended up doing it motion control just to get this sort of very, um, it needed to be a very slow and regal kind of camera move. You know, the first time we did it, we had the poor camera operator like hanging off of a jib arm and with his eye and an extension eyepiece and it was a complete disaster and so then we shit canned that one and then we brought in another piece of equipment and we tried it with that and finally I just said you know let's do it on a computer and tear the wall out and put a motion control camera in there and get the shot we want. This is one of a number of scenes that we got to shoot with Nicole before she was hurt and uh, couldn't finish the movie. And it's interesting to it's interesting to plan something out with one person doing it and then end up doing it with another person because it's because physicality does come in to how you plan for things. Um, there's just certain there's a certain physicality that Nicole has that's just markedly different than what Jody has. I mean, Jody is a different kind of actor to look at in a medium shot. She, you just cover her in a different way. It's always interesting when you, if you get an opportunity to see, you know, two world-class people do the same, ostensibly the same thing, the same scenes. It was kind of fascinating to watch. This is called the big shot only because we weren't very imaginative when we were trying to think of what to call it. But this shot was one of the first, I believe it's actually described in the script um, similarly to how it was actually presented in the movie. It was one of the first things that I sort of 
interested me in the movie was the notion of being inside a fishbowl, looking out and seeing the cats. I like the idea of setting up a burglary sequence, not by showing the exterior of the street and being down the street and seeing the guys. I liked the, the discipline, the rigor of, of what David Kep was doing when he just decided to show you the guys on the outside breaking in from the inside, exclusively from the inside. It may have been a mistake to smooth all this stuff out, because we did. We went back in on the computer and smoothed out a lot of the movement. But the thing that I like about I like the precision because it's it's not something that people can do. It's so personality free. I think there's something about that that's Terminator-like. It looks so mechanical, it tends to look like it was made by a machine. It sort of tells you that it's not real or there's an exactitude there that's, you know, precludes human involvement. But I also think, I mean, we, sh we shot a lot of stuff that was done by hand, just trying to get that personality. I don't think it has a personality. Maybe it does. I sort of saw it as there's no one there. There's no one pushing a dolly. There's no one pulling focus. The opening sequences with uh, walking around with Anne and with Ian, you don't really get a sense of the house. You get a sense of pieces of the house. You sort of have an idea that it's old. You have an idea that it's spacious, high ceilings, you know, a lot of stairs. But you don't really know where everything is. And, and this was a kind of interesting opportunity to lay out for the audience in no uncertain terms exactly where everybody is, how long it takes to go at a fairly casual pace from her bed to the street or from her bed to the skylight. That's one of the things I liked about the script was the discipline of it and the kind of it's, it seems like an economical way to do things, but of course it's always the most expensive. It's the most expensive shot in the movie and probably took two weeks of filming to do one shot. As I recall in the, in the script, it was one, it was stated that it was one continuous shot, but I may have just been lying for so long about the need for it to be one continuous shot that that's how I I may have tried to put the onus on, you know, turn to Amy and say, but David says it has to be that way, and you want him to write Spider-Man too. Forrest Whitaker is uh, an actor. I always knew he was an actor, but I didn't know him as an actor. I, I knew him as a director at Propaganda Films years ago when he was directing music videos, and we met and talked, and. I got to know him there, and when I read the script, the character was written as a very kind of glib, almost like a salesman, like somebody, or he was more of a white-collar criminal. He was like a guy who had a gambling debt who designed, was like an architect for panic rooms. And I just sort of never bought that. It seemed, a, it seemed like an unnecessary contrivance in a script that necessitated a lot of contrivances. So it seemed to me that if he works for a, a safe company or, or a security company and he knows specifically about this one, that it, I like the idea of a guy who's who's doesn't own his own business. <laughs> I like the idea of a guy pulling himself up by his bootstraps going, oh, well, if I can just turn my head for one evening, I can make a couple million bucks and 
get out. I love what Forrest brings to it, which is this a worn quality. He wears what he's doing. He inhabits it, and it becomes like an old glove on him. And I love that about him. He's not interested in sparkle, and he's interested in, like, making something look like it's gotten there through years of abuse. And I love that about him. Especially, like, Ghost Dog. It's like you watch that performance, and he's so... There's a great confidence that he has in inhabiting something. He doesn't second-guess it. He doesn't worry about, you know, whether people will like it. He just kind of goes and does it. We shot a lot of POVs of Jared's looking into the house, and it was a very interesting thing because it never looked right. When we shot it at his height, the house looked fake. It looked small. And then when we shot it sort of at his knee height, it looked, you know, the ha there was too much ceiling, and it looked made him feel... It was just bizarre. And we finally ended up shooting his POV about buckle height, about, you know, three feet off the ground, three and a half feet off the ground. And it's such a weird thing because we kept going back and reshooting it and we'd look at it in dailies and go, it just doesn't look like what he would see. And it just didn't cut. And it's one of those very odd things that you run into where you shoot something and it's technically from the place that the person would see, like through keyholes. You know, keyholes are really, really hard or shooting through cracks in the door really hard because... You have to be able to see specific things on the other side, and, and you end up, like, having to move the whole setup two feet or what, you know, there always ends up being something about it that you didn't think would be a problem, and it ends up being a problem. And in this movie, strangely enough, shooting Jared's POV proved ridiculously problematic. We keep an eye on her. Raul can totally administrate that part. I want Raul to administrate that part. He's not even supposed to be here. I'd met Forrest years ago, and when I sort of reorganized the script in my mind, I instantly thought of him, and I thought, you know, I need somebody who's physically imposing, but I also needed somebody who, every time they moved, they belied how dangerous they, you know, their physical presence could be. And he's a a big man, but he's also so kind, and you can see in his face that he just wants to make, and he's just trying to make things work. So I called him and said, hey, I'd like you to come in and talk to me about this thing, and uh, I didn't even know that he'd read the script before, and he came in, and, and we talked, and he sort of said, well, here's what I would do with it, and we talked, and I said, great, and um, you know, love to have you do it, and he was like, okay, well, let me know when you make up your mind. And I said, no. Of course, I made up my mind, you know, you got the part. And he was like, well, you know, you don't have to say that right now. And I, <laughs> I said, you know, take yes for an answer. If you want to do it, we'd, we'd love to have you. And same thing with Dwight. Dwight came in. I met, I think I met with Dwight the same afternoon. And uh, I said, you know, I'd love you to do this thing if you'd like to play Raul. And he thought I, he was very amused by the notion that I would cast him to play somebody named Raul. But I told him, I said, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that he has to look like Raul. He just has to. And of course, it became a running joke in the in the movie, or certainly in the making of the movie, that that was his uh, nom de plume for the evening. Dwight was great about the mask because that was one of the things that I told him at the beginning. It's like, you know, 
I really want you to be in this movie and I really think it will be great. And not just because, <laughs> not just because I'm going to ask you to wear a mask the whole time, but in spite of the fact, because there's not a lot you can do, you, you know, as a physical presence, as a heavy in a movie, it's a difficult thing to do when you don't have a lot of your face showing. But I like the conception of a character who doesn't really give you a lot until it's too late. This is something that made people really, really uncomfortable in uh, test screenings. I guess the idea of people urinating in the middle of the night is something that only I am familiar with. But um, it seemed to make audiences... This is where they started to squirm, believe it or not. Dwight Yoakam is a lot of fun. I'd seen him in things and never known that it was him. I, and I always remember, especially Sling Blade, I remember waiting for the end credits and going, who the fuck was that guy? He was amazing. And then I met him, and, and you realize why he's such a good actor, because he's just so curious about people and so fearless, willing to kind of do anything. He doesn't care. It's like, what do you need me to do? There's a famous story about... Humphrey Bogart on Casablanca that there's this great moment in it where he goes and he nods and the and the band strikes up. They play a song that flies in the face of the Nazis who are present. And there's a famous story about how people infer so much from his little nod that, you know, he he's able to deliver this nod. It's such a simple thing with so much heart and and really, the, and the story goes that Michael Curtis just came to him and said, you know, hey, we got time for one more shot. I just need you to walk over to the railing and nod. And Bogart said, okay. And he, they rolled camera and Bogart walked over and he nodded. And that was that. And they checked the gate and they went on. And the next day they went on with the scene. And that's kind of what it's like working with three directors on a, on a movie because there are times when you can go, look, we have time for one more shot. <laughs> I don't really have time to fill you in on everything that's happening and what it all means or what you're carrying with you at this moment in your life, but you just need to walk over to the railing and nod. If you have to make a movie and you only have 130 days to shoot in one house, get directors because directors understand they know what you're up against and they go, okay, I'm just nodding. This is an extremely helpful group of people. You know, and everybody really wanted what was best for the team. They were really good about that. There were no narcissists here. This sequence is indicative of where the previs was invaluable because there were so many little pieces that we we didn't have to do beginning. A lot of times when you're when you storyboard a sequence, you do a drawing that's just sort of showing you a key moment in the sequence. And then you get on the set and you have to kind of devise a moment before that moment and a moment after that moment to give an actor the ability to travel through that moment. They have to you have to kind of give them a beginning, middle and end. And really all you need is the middle. That's the the part you've drawn the picture of. And the previs process, especially on this sequence, allowed us to really be able to go they're going to do this action. Where are we going to cover it from? Where are we going to put the cameras? So that we could kind of see how to best optimize the actors moving through a space. And so there was a lot of times where you could just kind of twofold. One is it showed extremely specifically where the camera was going to be and what walls needed to fly because in a house like this, 
every time you put a take a wall out and put a wall back in, it's 45 minutes. You gotta cut the plaster and the paint. You gotta move the thing out. You gotta unscrew it. You gotta secure it. You gotta move it down one of the elevators. You gotta, you know, make the set area secure around where you've moved the wall so nobody falls off the set. So it's a, it's a big deal if you go, I need to be here and we need to move this wall out of the way. So the previous allowed us to know that stuff weeks in advance. It also was a great guide to be able to put a tape in and show an actor, this is all I need from you this afternoon. You just push on this door and knock these boxes out of the way and then the next time I'm going to need you, you're pounding on the outside of the door. And tomorrow we shoot the shot where we're looking through the door and the door closes. And so they can sort of a lot of frustration, I think, for actors, especially over the course of a long shoot like this was, is knowing how to pace themselves, knowing, oh, well, I'm only ankles today. It's a good thing to be able to let them know. They can look at a cut version of the sequence and go, I get it. You know, you're going to see me at the end of the hall, and you're going to see my ankles, and you're going to see me for three frames before the door shuts. Okay. Um, then they can go off and play their guitar read comic books and they come back and they know that they're only needed for these 10 or 12 usable frames. You know, a lot of the time spent on a, on a stage is going, okay, and then I want to come over here and go, well, you know, you can't get that far over. It's like, well, why not? Oh, because Matbox is going to run it. Oh, yeah, okay, well, then come over. The, you know, I mean, there's a lot of that kind of working stuff out that you get in advance, that you figure out in advance. And I like that. I... I would I spend $600,000 on it? Probably not. You know, I'd probably spend a quarter of a million dollars on previs and just find the five or six things that I needed or 10 things I really needed to do. But the chase sequence up and down the elevators is actually invaluable in terms of the previs because we could work out how fast the elevators were supposed to move, how fast the doors were supposed to move. You know, if you put a little pneumatic door closer like how fast did it have to be able to work in order because somebody running at this many miles per hour across it so so it allowed us to work out a lot of the issues before we got there i worked with jared on fight club i got a call from his manager at the time who said you know jared would love to be in this movie in some way would you meet with him? And I said, yeah. And he came down and I met with him and was struck by how good looking he was and so decided that the only useful part in the movie for him was be Angel Face where he gets his face beaten off. And um, I was thinking on this film, I needed somebody who would do all the physical stuff because there's an enormous amount of running around and, and stay kind of focused. <laughs> but also had a sense of humor. I needed somebody who was kind of funny. I really get along with Jared. I love his sense of humor. And he is a extremely self-deprecating person. And although I don't think he appreciated having to spend, you know, nine hours a day in makeup on <laughs> Fight Club and <laughs> another six hours a day in makeup on this movie to get all of his burns on. And, you know, we did light him on fire. And we did, we made him do all of his own stunts pretty much. And, uh, you know, we did shoot him in the back of the head and pull his feet out from under him with a wire, and we did all this stuff. And he's, he's, you know, my kind of masochist. Walton, use your head. Okay, here he comes. We're sort of basing his character on a lot of people that we mutually know who um, maybe suffer from trust funditis and have this kind of, like, obsession with street credibility. So he... <laughs> He called me one day. This is what I love about Jared, because he's so 
funny and so unstoppable in his excitement. He's down in South Crenshaw somewhere with Candy. He's like, I'm with Candy and I want to show you what I've done to my hair. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't care. I don't care what you do to your hair. Why, why are we having this conversation? He said, no, I'm coming by. We were in Manhattan Beach and he drove out for an, an hour and he shows up with the cornrows and he's like, okay, now's your chance to talk me out of it. And I just thought, no, it's so sort of spectacularly bold. You have to give it to people when inspiration strikes. I thought it was so cool that he was this snotty, nasally white kid who saw himself as Luttrell Sprewell, and saw himself as such an original gangster. Angus Wald, who's an editor and friend of mine who has cut a lot of commercials, he he had this thing. He's the he's the second editor on the movie. He has this thing where he kind of, without telling you, he will do a lot of little split screens, and so you see these sequences cut together, and you go, "Wow!" You know, Dwight exits frame just when he's supposed to, and those guys are moving. Oh, it's all, and you find out that he's literally created these masters by running these 10 and 12 split screens running through it where <laughs> and and you can never get this action to happen in real life the way that it's supposed to but um you know so we would go back and we'd be pulling we'd be scanning material and all of a sudden there'd be Dwight in the back of these shots and you go well he's not that's not the right shot and was, oh no no it's just it's a traveling split screen throughout the whole thing we have to roto the guys in the foreground we would realize you know Angus had been at it again we call the editing room and go, okay, no unauthorized split screens anymore. Renkleis, the sound designer, had a lot of work on this movie. I think he worked on this movie for about six or seven months before we even started shooting. <laughs> and uh, just collecting sounds, getting, you know, sounds of the city, sounds of people in bars down the street and people walking down empty streets. You know, every time we go through a wall, there's like a special sound of inside the wall, like the hum. The mix on this movie was so complicated. There were so many tracks. And it's all because of his psychotic attention to detail and trying to make sure that everything had a really specific sound. Like that shot right there, uh, Jared throws the pen down. Well, he didn't really throw the pen down. He actually, when he holds the paper up, he drops the pen at that point. So we had to edit the sound of him dropping the pen out and then put the pen into this, where he throws the uh, paper down. You'd never realize how much <laughs> sound editorial goes into a movie. Hey, fine, good, excellent. We all believe you. How do we get into that room? Hey. What is funny about this? I think people who have panic rooms have a maybe an inflated sense of self. I would hope, A, to not ever own anything so valuable as to need the security system that's pictured in this movie, or B, feel so despised <laughs> that I would have to hide from or protect myself from this kind of... Uh, Violence. But you can't get out of this house. We keep her here, keep her quiet for 20 minutes, and I don't want any help from Joe Pesci over here. 
The Joe Pesci line was funny because um, Kep included that in the... Um, that was in the first script that I read, the Joe Pesci line, and, and I don't think it was intended to be a reference to Home Alone. I think it was intended to be a reference to his just, like, kind of general thugism. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, when we read it in the first read-through, it was apparent that this <laughs> that had taken on another meaning, and uh, that that meaning would be equally as humorous, but probably a little closer to the bone than I think anybody wanted to think about. I think this movie has a lot more to do with, uh, you know, Rear Window meets Mouse Hunt. I guess it used to happen all the time. I don't know why you choose certain things. You know, low blood sugar, I don't know. I know why I chose Seven. I chose Seven because when I read it, I thought, oh, fuck, I got to see this movie. And I can kick this shit out of this. I know I can. And it's not like people are offering me a lot of movies. And I don't know, I don't actually remember, I don't think I was offered seven. I think I just read it and insinuated myself into it. Um, the game was, came from a slightly more juvenile place. I, I'd always liked the stuntman, and I liked, you know, I liked kind of puzzle movies. I liked the sting, and I liked, and I liked the idea of making a Twilight Zone episode that has nothing to do with anything supernatural. It has everything to do with, you know, movie stunts. Um, so I like that. Fight Club was a book I read. I just thought, I got to be involved in this. You know, even if I have to pull cable or do craft services, I got to do something. I have to be involved in this. And then um, Panic Room was just one of those things I read. I thought, I've not made one of these. I've not made a date movie, you know, and, you know, nail biting. So I thought that could be a cool thing to do. Next up is the uh, serial killer musical romantic comedy. The hardest overriding reality is that, I mean, you read something, you read a script and you go, oh, that would make a neat movie. And then you're never gonna enjoy that movie in the same way that you did reading it that one time. Because then the second time you read it, of course you know it, and third time you read it, you're breaking it down and starting to go, well, who would I get? And how would I do this? And, and so, and then you go and you take a year, you know, in this case, the case of this movie, a year to shoot it, starting and stopping and building the set and, Previs and all that stuff. It took like nine months of reproduction, six months of shooting, eight months of post or something. The thing that got you excited is the first thing lost in a two-year process. The reason you wanted to do it is the, f is the first thing that you have to jettison in terms of your enthusiasm. And you're always trying to hold on to that, that memory of what it was like when you first read it and were excited by it. And then, of course, the rest of the time, for the next two years, you're not excited by it. You're just behind and over and... 
behind schedule, over budget, not getting the work the way you want. It's not as succinct as it should be. You know, you add another camera and trying to figure out a way to get a setup ahead and all you've done is make things take an hour longer to light and so now you might as well be shooting the other setup and all that. Do you really think that I would still have a job? This movie is deceptively complicated. This scene is a good example. You have a guy who's pounding on the ceiling and, and you're seeing lath and plaster rain down on him after every hit. Well, there's this dialogue scene happening at the same time. So maybe you normally need four or five takes to shoot a dialogue scene. But now you've just compounded it because the dialogue has to be happening at the same time that you have a guy breaking the ceiling in the background. So he's going to have to break it in the same place and it's going to have to break in somewhat the same way in order for it to match from shot to shot. But every time he breaks that ceiling piece, you've got to replace it. So that means somebody has to come in with a knife and cut the paint because the paint glues it all together. Unscrew it and they pull out the piece. The piece itself weighs eight or 900 pounds because it's a real wall because you can't pound it with a sledgehammer if it's a fake wall. It'll just you know, it'll look like a ball peen hammer to a Barbie house or something. So you gotta, if it's eight or 900 pounds, you gotta build like a little railway system to be able to winch up, hoist the ceiling piece, and then you have to take it out of the way. So now it's 45 minutes to an hour to remove the piece, then you gotta paint it, and it's gonna take another 10 or 15 minutes to be in there, and then you gotta bring all the actors back in to reset the cameras. Say you do seven or eight takes, per setup with three cameras and you have three three camera setups to complete it, it's now taking you 45 minutes to an hour between each take. You only have an eight hour shoot day, nine hour shoot day. So it's gonna take you two days to shoot this sequence. You know, and of course it's on the script. It's like, yeah, he pounds on the ceiling and this is what they say and don't do that. And, he, and Forrest gets an idea and Forrest leaves. And it seems so simple. It seems like it should take a half day, but it just, because there's destruction involved and you have to build on the destruction as the continuity of the movie progresses, you know, it's just uh, something that normally take you a half day has just become two. If I do my job right in prep, I always feel like the shooting should be boring. The previs aspect of this movie is not what made the onset part excruciating as much as there were so many technical things to, you know, a child actor has to be gone in six hours. She can only be on the set for so many hours at a time and then she has to go back into school and then she has to be there for a certain, you know, so you have that, you're juggling that. Then you have a room in the middle of your soundstage that looks like a fucking NBC Studios that's running every videotape feed of every monitor that's switching back and forth that goes to the panic room and we have multiple panic rooms. And so you have, you know, so you're setting up a shot in there. You, you have to get the actress, you know, the minor actress out and back into rehearsal. And then one of your tape machines goes down on your, and now you don't know when that's going to be back up. And you've got a leak that's happening in the kitchen and the flooring is screwed up. And so in, in that respect, this movie was just plagued. The, the movie was a drag to make from that standpoint, not... It wasn't that the movie was boring because I had already made the movie. I did feel like I made the movie three times. But that's... I'd rather be prepared and bored than excited and 
You know, hemorrhaging cash and looking like a fucking moron. Previs at this point is expensive. But, um, you know, the prices of it, you know, like the prices of visual effects, the prices of it will come down. It's simply 21st century storyboarding. That's all. Here's a good example. It's like you have a guy drilling a hole and he drills through a pillow and all these feathers come out. <laughs> well, between every take, you have to go in and vacuum all of those feathers up. And feathers are not real cooperative. They get everywhere. And they're in people's hair and they're in, you know, and one of the story points is one of the things that makes this sequence so nice is the notion that when he does finally get the whole gas thing hooked up, you see from the feathers being sucked into the hole left in the ventilation, you see that there's a connection between the hole in the sheet metal and what's happening inside the panic room. And then you go to the propane being hooked up and then you see them pumping the propane in. You know, it's such a simple thing, but when it gets right down to it, I mean, the army of people that it takes to go in and get rid of all the feathers that are still floating in the air I mean, this is goose down. It's just, it, you know, we had feathers on stage around the set of the house for six months. You can just never, ever get rid of them. Open it some more. I thought the movie was, you know, would be a sort of amped up stage play, you know, wait until dark or something, something imminently controllable. <laughs> I don't think that this is an effects movie, but I knew that there were going to be more. There were going to be more effects than what was sort of alluded to in the, in the script. I mean, obviously, when you get into fire, you know, hugging the ceiling, you know that that stuff's going to be a visual effect. But I don't think I had any idea that there were, you know, 70, 80 effects shots in the movie. I worked with Kevin twice before, and we talked early on about this movie really mostly in terms of the whether the technology was there to do the kind of big seamless shots that I wanted to do and, and move a camera between walls and but there's a lot of other things for the visual effects supervisor to do as it turned out it was trying to figure out a way to do you know gas you know that that was visible enough for the audience to know what they were talking about you know we need we were trying to create this sort of like helium heat wave kind of thing as it turned out we ended up doing the cell phone that when the cell phone gets you know dropped under the bed we did that cg i tried to do a sequence where jody is grabbed by dwight and she drops the syringe bag and the syringe bag comes sliding along the floor into the foreground and we'd shot 107 takes of it taking about <laughs> three and a half hours of shooting to get the take that's finally in the movie and, you know, after which I turned to Kevin and said, we're never doing that again. And, and he pointed out, you know, there's a sequence going up where a gun is supposed to slide across the floor and land in the foreground. And I said, well, take the gun, get it cyber scanned right now, because I'm not, we have to do that CG. I'm, I'm just, there's no way I won't make it through this movie if we have to, you know, actually shoot that practically. So there's a lot of stuff for him to do, you know, um, the leaves blowing at the end leaves at the beginning, the fire, you know, there's, it ended up being a considerable amount of stuff. But um, I never saw this as an effects movie. I never saw this as a movie that would be heavy in effects. I think it just, you know, trying to tell the story.
we ended up having to do things in ways that just weren't feasible to do live. We shot the movie three perf mostly because I wanted to do a digital intermediate and the digital intermediate was going to cost a quarter of a million bucks or something to do it. So I thought, well, if I shoot three perf because I want to shoot Super 35 and do an anamorphic extraction, I can uh, offset the cost of the digital intermediate by the amount of film that I'll save because I'll shoot 800,000 feet and, you know, I'll probably save 200 grand by losing that one extra perf per frame. I probably ended up shooting about 1.2 million feet of film and, and probably saved about 350 grand in film stock just by shooting 3Perf, which of course paid for the digital intermediate. But it's not something I'm proud of. It was more involved than it needed to be, but I love high-definition dailies. I think that's a great... I may do a commercial with this, uh, this is 4K camera. It's called a Viper. It's pretty amazing. The, the picture is pretty amazing. It doesn't look like film. It's not a replacement for film. It's like, it's a replacement for HD. But, you know, it's horses for courses. It's like, could you have made Blair Witch Project in 16 millimeter? Yeah. Would it have been better? No. You know, there's something really of the time and immediate about high eight and handicams, and that's what that movie should look like. We chose it, 3Perf, specifically with the idea of the digital intermediate in mind because, you know, I mean, quite honestly, that's where the movie business is heading. It just makes more sense to color correct your movie on a big screen telecine than it does to sit in, a, in the screening room at Technicolor and go, that shot 10 seconds ago, that was a little too, okay, th this part, this is just a little, all right, stop that, okay, roll that back, okay, never mind, that, that's too blue, okay, that part right there, okay, at this many feet, it's just an insane, it's an insanely antiquated idea, and coming from music videos and commercials, certainly my peers are so much more completely versed in telecine ideas than they are in the lithograph <laughs> that is, that is photochemical release printing. So, you know, it was, it was peas in a pod. It was, I wanted to do digital intermediate because I figured that would give me the most flexibility and control and I would be comfortable with it. It's a world I'm more comfortable with. I could make it pay for itself by being in 3Perf and I could get the most out of 3Perf by the digital intermediate process because it is sharper on the extraction and the anamorphizing than to do digital anamorphic than it is to do a lens through through a piece of glass. I mean, anamorphic lenses are just wildly stupid ideas. Because it's just, it's, you're sh shooting through something that's warping and distorting your picture. And uh, you, no matter how mathematically perfect that prism is, it's, it's another piece of glass. I just did a commercial about three weeks ago, an anamorphic. It was just a nightmare. I mean, the lenses that you have, the the size of the lenses, the, the matching, it's just, it's nightmarish. I don't know why. So I, I don't know that I would ever shoot anamorphic. I would shoot anamorphic if I could shoot, you know, deep focus, shoot everything at a T16 or <laughs> shoot everything at 8,000 foot candles and try to get everything in focus. But for critical stuff and for close-ups, my God, you know, this is a truly archaic technology. I mean, I like anamorphic lens flares just because it makes it, f I'm more aware of the veil between me and the 
people on the screen. I like that. I like that in Close Encounters. I like the way that I feel like I'm peering through a, a window into this. And, and when you get those big streaks across the frame, it says it's a movie. Howard Shore, as usual, um, didn't <laughs> ended up having no time to do the music because we kept like shooting inserts of stuff and and I I was really happy with the score. I thought he did a I especially love this theme, the the opening theme that we kind of reiterate three times. It's has a certain diabolical feel to it, but it's also sort of a movie. And I thought that was a nice fence to straddle. I love what he came up with and how sort of he pays a, a nice homage to Hitchcock, not in that overly sweaty Bernard Herrmann kind of way. I feel like he always really supports what's happening pictorially beautifully. I don't know if this movie is, is specifically a footnote movie. I mean, I sort of feel like all movies, you got to kind of go in with the idea that this isn't the one that defines you, you know, because I think people get too um, caught up in the legacy that they're leaving. And I and I, so I sort of like thrillers. I like this movie because it's not really about crime or any kind of sociology. It's really, it's just a... Um, it's a lurid thriller. You know, it's a Friday night movie. It's a, it's not supposed to be that important. And I think that a lot of people get questions when you, you know, release a movie that, what were you trying to say? It's like, uh, I don't know. I was just trying to say that two chicks got caught in a closet and three guys tried to get in and, and they burned the place down. But I don't know. I guess the footnote movie aspect is that it's not supposed to be taken too seriously. What Hitchcock once said, I'm not making slices of life, I'm making slices of cake. And I think that, you know, it's important to, you know, we're not curing cancer, we're, we're just making a movie with actors pretending to be burglars. So he's your problem. Hey, you know what, you're right. It wasn't your idea. None of this was your idea. It was my idea. Andy Walker, who's a dear friend of mine, um, agreed to do the um, cameo as the prince of porn across the uh, alley from Jodie Foster's new house. And I like the idea of David Kep's notion that you could flash a flashlight with Morse code in the eyes of somebody in New York City and that instead of them deciphering what it meant and trying to come to your rescue, they would just shut their blinds. And so in Hollywood, you have to get such a thick skin, especially if you're a writer, about being rewritten. You always have to be really careful when another writer shows up on set. So I used to always joke with Kep, say, you know, Andy's coming down. But don't worry, it's just for fitting. He's, he's not coming down to make any changes. We're not working on the second act. But we had Andy come down and <laughs> and put on his wife beater and get some coffee stains on it and get a old ratty robe. And he was like, do I get to keep my wardrobe? <laughs> I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm the loving grandson who's wasting a fucking time with the old man every goddamn weekend for two years 
barking him, feeding him. Are you done? No. I'm the one the old man finally told not to save. I'm the one who found the guy who built it. And I'm the one who convinced him to break into it. We had this flickering light effect because we wanted after the explosion, we wanted one of the fluorescents to be screwed up in some way. And it ended up being <laughs> such a hard thing to cut around because you wanted it to be erratic. But sometimes it just felt like when you would cut, it would be like the lights had been off for too long or they were flickering too fast or something. It was one of these things that you think is going to be a really good idea and then it ends up screwing everything up. I earned that money. And I will not let you jeopardize my whole fucking plan because you have a problem relating to others. Got it! If I don't come back and close this door, Mom, just do what I say. If it touches me again, I'll shoot him. Ah, Christ! I remember reading the script Wait. and going, and uh, flipping the pages till I got to the part where she goes out after the cell phone and then she tries to find it and it she tries to grab it and it slides further into the bed and I was sitting there going, oh my God, you can't do this. There's no, and then she knocks the lamp over. It's like, this is, no one will sit still for this. And this is one of the things that I think David Kep is really great at. And he just smiled and he said, you know, if you're gonna make a movie like this and this is a date movie and it's a Friday night movie, you gotta have her go for the cell phone and you gotta have her miss it and it's gotta continue to slide. She's gotta knock over the thing. They gotta hear and they gotta run up the stairs. I said, okay, look, if we're going to do this, then I'm going to do it in slow motion. And he said, okay, <laughs> now, now, you're, now, you're, now you're with the program. Now you got the right attitude. So if you're going to do something as kind of bald-faced as this, you've got to just go all the way and make it as, you know, if you're going to pander, pander. The sound design of the sequence was always, you know, fairly elaborate potpourri of and we just let run just run with that but there there was a lot of effects work in it just in trying to split screen trying to get the lighting to match the film you know we shot a high speed stock and we shot it at 84 frames a second instead of 24 frames a second and for some reason things just didn't look the same so we ended up kind of color correcting things and doing split screens and trying to put it back together it's still a bit of a hodgepodge but i think you know i think the idea of it works Nicole was injured. She had a hairline crack and a bone in her leg. I believe it was just below her knee. And she was, of course, trying to be stoic and saying, no, 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 it's okay. We'll just, everyone goes down for nine days. And then, <laughs> and her doctor was saying, don't listen to her. She's crazy and has no idea what she's talking about. And this is a six month deal. And, you know, and we don't want to have to pin it and we want to let it heal and yada, yada, yada. And so, Eventually, the studio had to step in and say, we got to make this movie. And, and I had to call her and say, we're going to have to find somebody else. And I forget exactly how it came about. We talked about Jody initially, but she was doing a movie with Russell Crowe. She was directing a movie that Russell Crowe was doing. And so she wasn't in the mix. And also, as we were casting uh, the daughter's role, one of the things we kept coming back to was the reason we love Kristen Stewart so much was because she reminded us of a young Jodie Foster. We were like, she's so, she's like Jodie Foster at 11. So Larray, I think, was the one who said, you know, I heard that Russell Crowe has torn something in his shoulder and Flora Plum is shutting down. And I was like, that's great news. <laughs> Fantastic. 
Um, so I called Joe Funicello and I sent the script over and I said, look, she would be doing us the greatest favor if she would read this tonight and tell me what she thinks. And he called and said, well, she'd like to meet with you. And so I went over to the Four Seasons and we had a drink and I said, you know, I hate to put you in this situation, but we're off and running. We're, we've been shooting for 18 days and we're gonna have to start over. And she said, I know, and I'm, I'm fine with that. I said, there's not gonna be a lot of time to rehearse. She said something to the effect of, you know, rehearsal's overrated. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I would be lying if I said we weren't getting the better end of the deal. So when can you start? And she said, well, I've gotta get out of this thing at Cannes Film Festival, but Wednesday. <laughs> That's the first, you know, and, and the thing about Jody is that when she, she literally has thought it out, she stops for a second, you know, her eyes kind of buzz around in her sockets and, and she'll tell you, you know, I could be ready by Wednesday 2.30 in the afternoon. And you go, oh, all right, and that's indeed when she's ready. I think we did a couple of days of rehearsal just to modify some stuff. David Kep came to LA and rewrote a number of scenes, just very slight modifications because the part as originally written was about a woman who had, who was a more disconnected from her daughter, or disconnected in a different way. And so we decided to kind of alter the text a little bit so that she was, the daughter was more of a pawn in this, this relationship between Jody and her ex-husband. A few little things like that, but then we just started right up again. This is another one of those sequences that you read in the script and you kind of go, I don't know if this is going to work. She's pulling on one side of the wall, he's on the other side of the wall. It's like, you know, audiences, they love to be engaged in this kind of way. And I remember this is kind of one of the most fun things to watch in the early screenings of the movie was uh, how people reacted to this such a simple idea of like they're upstairs and they gotta run downstairs and we don't really know what Burnham's up to we don't really know that he knows anything about phones but he's he's off and running somewhere and we sort of follow him blindly you know I'd never made a movie where that successfully had an audience kind of cringing waiting for what was going to happen, where they were sort of in lockstep with narratively what's going on. So it was fun at the test screenings of this movie to watch people bite their nails on this stuff. Kramer versus Kramer is a movie that deals much more explicitly and deeply and profoundly with divorce. But I always saw this movie as being about divorce. You know, you've built this thing, this relationship, you've built this, and then when push comes to shove and it gets ugly, you're willing to see it completely destroyed in order to protect the things in it that you love, you know, your kids or... So yeah, I mean, on a metaphoric level, I felt like there was stuff in this to kind of, is not sink your teeth into, you know, something your, your molars could grind, you know, a little later on in the meal. But um, I like how David Kep is not pretentious and I like how all of the actors played what was right there. It was right on the surface. Put him on the phone, bitch. This is an interesting little cameo. We were doing the looping, and uh, I talked to Nicole Kidman, and she was on her way to, I guess she was doing, going to do The Tonight Show. And she 
asked me how things were going. I said, great. I said, I'm recording this uh, dialogue of this, the girlfriend that Jody calls when she calls the husband. She goes, oh, I know that scene. And I said, yeah. I said, well, you want to come by and be the girlfriend? And she said, okay. <laughs> she drove to Burbank and, and came over to Disney and played the girlfriend over the phone for three lines. He'll do something. No, he won't. I think casting's a big part of the job in that there are certain... Um, tangible things that an actor as a human brings to a role. I think that Forrest would have a hard time playing somebody who is evil. He genuinely doesn't have that. I think it would be hard for Jared Leto to play somebody who is naive because <laughs> he's just not that. You know, Jodie Foster can play a lot of things. Stupid ain't one of them. Actually, there was a movie we were talking about doing at one point. I wanted her to play Marion Davies, you know, somebody who was generally thought to have been sort of ditzy and not particularly bright, but all the people who knew her thought she was really sharp and really insightful. And I love the idea of somebody really smart playing somebody who... and let her try to cover up the fact that she's really smart. And then, as of course, as we get in closer and closer, you're going to kind of go, oh, wow, she's really, there's really something going on in there. So I think each actor is a buffet, and there's certain things that you're going to ask them to do. You know, in most cases, it's on display. You know, you're just editing. You're just kind of going, really, you think chips and guacamole here? I was kind of seeing sort of like the teriyaki tenders, you know. Maybe start with that and then go to like a deviled egg. There's a whole thing that they have to offer, and it's sort of your job to not lead them toward the thing that they can probably do well, but it just isn't appropriate. So, yeah, I don't know that casting is 90% of the job, but I think casting is... Uh, good casting and good writing never hurt a movie. Is that what's that line from Death Trap? It's so good even a talented director couldn't fuck it up. So that's it. I think you try to kind of get to a place where... Enough things are in motion that even a talented director can't fuck it up. Your expectations are different on the first day of shooting than they are on the hundredth day of shooting. On the hundredth day of shooting, you're like, if I can finish this and not shoot myself or anyone else around me, I will have done good work. You know, on the first day, you're trying so hard to kind of like make sure that this gets polished and that gets polished and that you're building on the right thing and you're you're so i don't really first days to me are usually sort of debilitating because i kind of go oh god i forgot it's not going to go like clockwork it's a fucking movie it's just like all those movies it's just like all those other movie experiences it's just going to be a lot of plotting and hard work so um you know usually for me it's like the Reality begins to rear its ugly head, and you go, oh, my God, look at all this perfect previs, and look at all these great little close-ups I have designed and these storyboards, and then, and now, look, these actors, for some reason, they can't get through eight pages of dialogue in three minutes. What is wrong? So I go through that. I go through the whole, how disheartening. It's just like normal movie That's like 10 or 12 million bucks in the safe. And a fuck-up like you has got to be getting less than everybody else. So now I don't even know what to think. This is an interesting scene because we had the cutaway of... We're setting up this 
notion that are going to pay off later that that she is in some way able to keep tabs on what they're doing and they're bickering amongst themselves and it's going to become necessary later on when quote raul is overpowered and and dragged down the stairs and then we find out that it's not raul that it's steven and this was just it was one of those things that you read it in the script and you go okay that makes sense and then you shoot it and cut it together and it just never quite there's not you don't get the shoe dropping the other shoe dropping you don't it never quite worked out so that you could go he beat him up and he and he knocked him out and he's dragging him down the stairs and we shot so many different kinds of inserts and things to hopefully tell that story and it's kind of one of the things that you end up just going well we've done all we can do and now it's up to people to either buy it or not there are points in in any movie where you just reach a point where you just go i can't help this idea along anymore it's either it's going to be up to the audience to either embrace her or not i love um dwight's execution of jared because it just seems i mean i guess a lot of people thought it was extreme but i i liked that he just seems so cool <laughs> Temperature-wise, he was so indifferent to human suffering that he was just like moving on to the next. Um, and I thought he did it really well. Dwight's not accident-prone. He's just a little enthusiastic, you know. He is an actor that you have to be cautious of. Like, you would never want. I would never hire Dwight to play an, a character who has to garrote somebody, <laughs> because. He's got, he's enthusiastic. He's an enthusiastic guy. I mean, if he's got to shoot somebody, fine, no problem. There's blanks, you can do all that. But if he's got to garrote somebody, chances are, you know, it shouldn't be one of your principles. Or if it is, it should be the last couple of days of shooting. Don't you fucking move. Come here. Fuck here. Hey. Don't shoot. Please. Shut it. Lock it. I met Patrick, um, I'd seen photos of him and videotape of him reading, you know, certain scenes where he was sitting in a chair and was supposedly tied up and, and he's wonderful voice and a wonderful face and, and I like the idea of somebody who, you know, Patrick seems like he's got everything together. He seems like the kind of guy that you would, if he said, look, wait right here, you would kind of go, all right, I'll, I'll be right here if you need me. And yet he literally walks into he you know walks into a shovel <laughs> as he walks into the movie and he spends the rest of the there there was a point in time where we discussed the idea of having like, like Mel Gibson show up as the the ex-husband and and you go oh my god Mel Gibson's here everything's going to be okay and then he just gets progressively more and more beaten so we didn't go the Mel Gibson route, and, and I met Patrick, and I really liked him, and I liked his face, and I didn't sort of realize the full extent of the brutality of the movie on him. And this poor guy was not only just like in these sodden clothes, but he was caked with blood for <laughs> weeks on end. He had to get an appliance for a broken collarbone. He had, I mean, he was shot and kicked and pushed over, and... By the end of it, it was, you know, I think I needed one more shot, and I he had to kind of go up and go, Patrick, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to need one more <laughs> shot from you. Will you please come in? And, he, you know, and he would go in and get his scabs on and his 
broken glasses and get his hair mussed and put, and it was just, it was just brutal. But it was one of those things you didn't really quite realize when you were reading the script, like the, the total effect of Patrick's character in the movie is one of, oh my God, this poor guy. And you become really aware of it when you have somebody hanging around your set for 35 days with, you know, just covered in blood. Help, Rubber Soul, Yesterday and Today, Magical Mystery Tour, The White Album. Stay warm, baby. Stay warm, alright. Let it be, Revolver, Sergeant Pepper. Oh, well, this scene, um, the stuntman who's doubling Patrick in this scene really got pretty badly beaten up because we had stunt people doing it in the wide shots and then we sort of matched in with the actors in the close-up shots. But we had a number of injuries, not the least of which was the guy who doubled Dwight getting thrown through the door by Jody and then he comes and he gets his hand caught in the door. <laughs> Hit the back wall so hard he was literally knocked out. <laughs> we were like, cut, okay, and how was that for you? How was that in there? How's everyone in the panic room? Somebody wake him up, because uh, he just, I mean, the sound was so loud. It was this thwock sound as his head hit the concrete on the other side, and then he was just out cold. I guess this movie is sort of brutal. Certainly get people having seizures and people getting beaten, and but hopefully all in good fun. The end of Seven is all handheld because it feels like that's what should be happening at that point, you know? This movie, I wanted to say to the audience, this is all very measured and intended, and then do things like have people have seizures and have people get their fingers cut off and have these horrible things happen. And there's like a sense of, I think it instills or creates sort of a sense of dread for the audience when they go, You're, everything I'm seeing is very specific. And now the victims are mounting. I just love the idea of this omniscience. Like the camera doesn't give you, it just goes over here kind of perfectly and then it kind of goes over there kind of, and it stays with this person. And it's, it doesn't have any personality. There's no, uh, oh wait, let's see this over here. This might be interesting to somebody. There's none of that sort of documentary kind of feel to it. It's very much like what's happening was doomed to happen. And I like that as the sort of psychological underpinning of the staging. Straw Dogs is a movie I've always admired because it's so uh, visceral. It's funny, it makes women hate men and men hate women <laughs> in equal measure. And uh, it is one of those, it's got to be one of the best Peck and Paul movies. And here's our homage to the poster. I wanted to make a movie that had where the brutality meant something, where it didn't just... And, and that's a pretty good model for that, because that movie is truly brutal. This is an interesting shot where you place it because... Obviously, no one has ever seen Dwight's face before, so they don't know 
when he sits up who he is. So you sort of have to kind of beg the question and then answer the question. You kind of have to go, who is that? And then, and it's such an odd, you know, we, we used to have it where, where he pulls the mask off and it reveals that it's Patrick and then you cut and then Dwight gets up, but it almost happened. It happened too late. It was, it seemed like it was better to kind of go, and then go and then answer the question who is that guy but it is a weird thing if you had a character wearing a ski mask the entire movie and then you suddenly go look it's him but the only identifying <laughs> identifying characteristics that you really know about the guy is the ski mask there are moments in a movie based on the script that you kind of go oh that's going to be in the trailer and there's moments in the th film as you're shooting it, and you go, oh, that, that's definitely going to be in the trailer. And, and you kind of you log those as you go by. So you sort of know what those moments are, the most sort of memorable pieces. You have a gut instinct about where you're headed and what you're trying to do. But I can't see the whole movie. I don't... I think if anyone said they could, they're, well, they're better men than I. This portion of the movie, you know, things get pretty active for Jody, And unfortunately, in real life, she was about four and a half months pregnant by the time we, we started. And there's a lot, I mean, there's not only a lot of running around, but there's a lot of getting pushed to the ground and being grabbed and strangled. And, and uh, she has an amazing stunt double stand-in named Jill who was probably probably ended up being on the set more than than Jody did during this particular trimester during the third trimester we uh we saw Jill a lot more than we saw Jody and rightfully so but but uh it was tough it was tough working around this because you know obviously from a moral standpoint you don't want to have to you don't want to put somebody in a situation where they're going to hurt themselves or their unborn child. But there's also the necessities of the movie, which is she's got to be strangled and somebody's got to smash her head against the floor and they've got to tackle her. And at a point in the narrative, we had to get her out of this bodysuit tank top thing into a sweater because her, uh, we, you know, she's holding a lot of things in front of her and, and you know, the bodysuit's black and the, and we kind of made the movie as dark as we could but at a certain point you start seeing that her belly is growing and there's just certain things we can and can't ask her to do like this <laughs> there's the uh, there's the 103 takes of the bag and that's the scene where Dwight's double hit the wall and knocked himself out and the hand getting caught in the door was a fake one um, that was made by Amalgamated Dynamics and this idea, the notion of this, stemmed from a conversation that I had with David Kep. We were talking about, I said, you know, if you're going to have as much exposition in this movie about how the door is impenetrable and how the door is, is you know, foolproof, you got to do something with that door. you got to maim somebody. And he said, well, we can't. We wouldn't want to maim either the women and the only guy that we really are going to hate is... Raul. I said, well, then you got to maim Raul. And he said, well, but if we do that, 
What's he gonna, if he gets his hand caught in the door, what's he going to do? Just spend the next scene just screaming and writhing around in pain? And I said, what's wrong with that? <laughs> and uh, he said, okay, I'll do it. And so we came up with this whole thing where he gets his hand caught, and then and that begins the negotiation for, I need to get Raul's hand out of the door, and she says, you know, I need you to give her the shot, give Kristen the shot. We were going to do a shot... I don't know why I thought the MPA would ever allow us to do it, but we were going to do a shot where when the door opened at the end, you saw these little remnants of his fingers that were sort of like crushed grapes or whatever drop into the door jam, and he was going to go back and pick them up. We would see them, and then we would see him clock them, and then, but uh, we never ended up shooting it. We do have a scene at the end where he picks up his fingers before he stands, um, and you don't see them very clearly, but ADI built these beautiful little crushed fingers with little bones sticking out of them. They look like little, uh, actually they look kind of like <laughs> little rubber turds or something, but the, um, like dachshund turds. But they built these things initially that they showed to me that were supposedly crushed, but they were made out of, completely out of foam rubber, and they were so light. They look like, you know, those little packing peanuts kind of thing. And I don't remember that I called them rubber Cheetos, but I did say it needs to have some weight to it. So I think they actually put lead shot in them and stuff because they had a little weight to them when they finally showed up on the set and we shot them. I still have them as paperweights, actually. People come into my office and I have post-it notes that are, have these little mangled fingers on them. I mean, this movie's pretty tight, you know, especially stuff in the panic room with the flickering lights and with uh, the amount of coverage that we needed to get with Kristen, who was 11, and we were only allowed to have her on set for six hours. We would pretty religiously use two cameras whenever possible. And, you know, it can be a real hassle, but I actually like shooting with two cameras if you're tied into the same axes and you're pulling off an extra piece of coverage. I think two cameras can work really well for you. And there are times also when it just drives cameramen crazy. But on uh, Fight Club, we had a dialogue sequence that we knew was going to have a lot of improvisation. And we ended up setting up four cameras, you know, both looking, in, two cameras looking in opposite directions and shooting an entire scene that way. So every, every once in a while it becomes, you have to do it. And we did a lot of two-camera stuff on this movie with Kristen just because we had such limited time with her and the rest of the time we was mostly one well it was probably mostly two but we were only you know looking for an alternate you know it wasn't like a three camera sitcom oh please just give it a shot No These guys it. got along well. It was funny to watch because they're so different, you know. Forrest is such an empath, you know. He really wants to feel so much. And Dwight, he's much more of a, like, let's just get in and just tear it up and just see what happens kind of thing. They're an incredibly fun group to work with. You know, Kristen, who tries so hard and is so unbelievably skilled. I'm not just saying for someone her age, but is, you know, wise beyond her years. And then, you know, Jody helped so much for me, you know, not being able to actually get into the same room with Kristen in a lot of cases because it's so overcrowded with technical personnel. 
cranes and video playback people and hair and makeup and props and you know you're in a room that's eight feet across it's like there's 13 people in there between takes you don't get to get in so I could talk to Jody and she not only could understand what I was saying from you know where I sat and what I was looking at but she also you know she's been Kristen she's been an 11 year old on a set with a bunch of adults going no 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 more faster this that you know and I could hear her on the on the headset because I would have a headset that was picking up all the boom mics or they would be on wireless mics and you could hear what's going on you could hear Jody talking to Kristen and you could hear how she would paraphrase what I had asked for and how kind of sweet how she would change things and make things more understandable to an actor and to an 11 year old actor it was uh I learned a lot I wish I could have put my kid in a place like this. It's not that I didn't try. Just sometimes things, they don't work out the way you want them to. We wanted the set to stay up. We wanted to, you know, because we spent probably six million bucks on this house. And it was beautiful, the working elevator, and, you know, it really worked. But scripts are so specific and the needs of a script are so specific that by the time you get done shooting that movie you really have no use for the necessary detritus so the movie business moves on and this becomes a write-off and you just chop it up into little pieces and throw it into a dumpster actually we salvaged we spent a lot of money actually salvaging the set cutting the steel into little bits and sending it off to be melted down to make other i-beams and we reused as much of the luon and or not Luan, whatever the, the green version of Luan is. But yeah, it's kind of, you know, you work on a set for six months, seven months, and then you go back three weeks later because we were cutting, the cutting rooms were down at Manhattan Beach where we shot the movie, and you go back there and it's all in dumpsters. It's pretty bizarre. Can you move? Not much. You can see the collarbone here. It's pretty subtle, but it's there. I mean, I, I have seen people at screenings who do get a good look at it, crawl out of their skin, because it is a particularly horrible little detail. Safes are so subjective, like what looks like a safe, just to get it to look like something that everybody could kind of agree on, because safes are not that kind of sleek. They're usually kind of clunky. Gavin DeBeck was somebody that I've met before. I, I didn't know him. Unfortunately, I know a lot of people who have use of his services. But I had always heard what a kind of fascinating guy he was and, and how kind of um, far-reaching his concerns are. And I'd read his book, A Gift of Fear, which I thought was a really interesting... He, he puts things in context really well. And so I called him about you know, possibly being a consultant. And he read the script and we met for sushi and he said the thing that he really liked about it and the only reason he would ever consider being a consultant on a film like this is because at least the door held. <laughs> he was like, please don't make a movie where somebody installs a panic room and then the panic room ends up not working because he goes, it just doesn't happen. So I said, no, no, it's our intention to state our, our rules up front and then stick with them. 
Certainly any panic room that had been built in the last five or six years would have a cell phone in it and would have an antenna that goes to the roof that allows you the you know cell phone to work inside the room. It would have you know battery backups for everything. So, and the door is a much simpler gag. I mean, it's not a it's nowhere near as evolved or elaborate or overbaked as the door that's pictured in the movie. But we wanted something that was a little bit like you know Hitler's bunker, or Saddam Hussein's. It needed to be a little extreme. It's a little bit Ernst Stavro Blofeld. And there goes Jody putting on this sweater she's supposed to, <laughs> that we had to rush to get her into. There was a certain point where I think he, was it Robin Williams said, talked about the titty fairy. There was a certain point where the titty fairy had just done too much work and we, we couldn't shoot her in the singlet anymore. Is everything okay? Right this now? is Paul Schulte. He's a, an actor who I had seen in Nick Gomez's movie, I guess, Laws of Gravity, and thought was fantastic. And we Somebody wanted to get him in Fight Club, and he wasn't available for that. And at the last minute, I had a friend of mine who was supposed to play this cop drop out. He had a movie overseas and he wasn't available. So I called Schultz and just said, hey, do you want to come down and play a policeman for one insanely long day? And he said, sure. And so he came down and he did this one scene and he was great. I like policemen in movies who seem like, I mean, weary is, you get a lot of that. But uh, he also was able to turn, you know, be sort of interested and vaguely humanistic. Your husband said you called for help. That you said there were three right before you got cut off. I met Jody Foster in 1996, and we were talking at the time about rewriting the Sean Penn character and the game for her, that it would be Michael Douglas's daughter. Because at the time, I grew up in a house full of women. You know, my, I had two sisters, and my mother was a, a central figure in our household. So the brother relationship is not something I really understood, you know. And so I thought the great thing about Jody is that um, her intelligence is so fierce. And I liked the idea in that movie that somebody comes and says to Michael, I've experienced this thing, and you should check it out. And so my initial idea was that this should be somebody who wouldn't have heard of Flea, you know. It didn't happen for whatever reason. And I ended up making the movie with Sean, and, you know, talking to Sean, who has, you know, two brothers, or is one of three, and, and Michael is one of four or five. It's like it made more sense to me ultimately that it was a you know Cain and Abel kind of thing but um, I met her then and always I always wanted to work with her I, she was always I think she gets a lot of credit for performances that are very smart but she's also she feels a lot with her eyes she you see it in her eyes you see that pain and pressure and remorse and you see those things she's a very close-up actress she's a really interesting actress in that respect and something that i hadn't really experienced yet an actor that screams for a close-up 
no matter what the scene is, she always finds something in her eyes and her face that you just want to kind of experience it through that. So in a weird way, she's she's an inexpensive actress because no matter what you pay her, you you don't have to do so so much, so much with the sets because you're gonna kind of be on her like collarbone up to her her hairline most of the time because that's sort of where you want to see her because that's where it's happening. And I hadn't really experienced that. I'd sort of thought I was going to shoot this movie mostly in medium shots, and it was going to be really, really dark. We actually, Darius and I did tests early on with uh, digital cameras where we just went down to the set and turned on, like, three lamps and just let the shadows kind of fall in the in the house where they would. And, you know, someday, someday I'll have the courage to do a a radio drama like that but it was it was intriguing because when Nicole was in, involved in the movie we sh- we were shooting the movie in a different way and then when Jody became involved that character is the hub of this story but in a weird way Jody became a different hub because you were closer to her um, Nicole somebody you take in sort of in a medium shot I mean, she's wonderful to look at and beautiful to photograph in close up but she's a different kind of physicality and so you sort of tend to shoot wider you tend to shoot like rib cage to the top of the head kind of mediums with her I mean she's great in close up and there's times when you want to underline things and you, but Jody really kind of exists in that and I'd never seen that before you know I've seen a lot of actors ask for close ups but I've never seen an actor who you just find yourself constantly wanting, let's go in a little closer. Let's see if we, let's take the mat box off. Let's take, you kind of find yourself pushing in and pushing in. She draws you in that way. More people were replaced on this movie than any movie I'd ever been involved with. And, uh, you know, I regret some of it. But, you know, oftentimes you just, you know, you make your mistakes. As Courtney Love once said, I made my bed, I'll lie in it. It's circumstance, you know, it's under duress. And nobody wanted to see Doris not finish the movie, but um, it was probably not the best match of artist and material in that he's a guy who can bring so much more and was in a lot of ways kind of asked not to. It was silly of me to think that it would be otherwise because I was kind of like going, well, we'll have it all worked out and when Darius arrives, he'll be so excited because he'll, all the staging will be done and of course he was mortified. <laughs> what do you mean? It's all on VHS? But, you know, I'll make it up to him. Conrad had shot a movie on a golf course, actually. You know, he paid his dues in the leisure movies and so it was time to try something truly awful and horrific so I asked him if he wanted to do this if he wanted to finish this and um, you know like Jody and uh, like Kristen and like Joe Viscoso just jumped in with both feet and decided to help us out These TVs, these, you know, it seems like such a simple gag to have eight television screens on the wall behind these guys as they're drilling and fighting and bickering and sweating. And it was such a clusterfuck because no matter what happens, you have to edit that material. So you have to get into tape loops and you have to get into 
moving sync and continuity around in order to make in order to give your actors in the foreground enough time to do certain things and everything has to play for a master that's looking at the screens and then you turn around and pull the screens out and getting the screens to match made the movie exponentially more complicated we used actual security cameras which are very infrared sensitive and so they see in the darkness a lot more than movie cameras do so we would stage a scene and shoot it with the movie cameras and get all the marks for where everything was and then when we were happy we would then move all of the lights out of the house and then because oftentimes you're not just shooting a scene for one video camera sometimes you're shooting a scene where you're covering the material for the security cameras from three and four or you may be doing a whole floor you may see force coming down the stairs in which case your action is covering two floors so you have to move everything out of the way and everybody goes down to the basement and then we patch all the video monitors in and then we're watching on the video monitor in some cases we would actually be in the panic room <laughs> watching what was happening off all the security cameras and you go through the action and you would be able to go okay that looks good you guys just did exactly what you did when we did the coverage with the movie cameras but now i need you to give me a pause here and a pause here because i need to cut away to a little bit of dialogue that's happening here and i want you to and so you'd have them go through that and you'd get an alternate take and then we would sit for hours cutting this material and making sure that there was enough time and i would say okay i'm definitely going away to a close-up of joda here and i'm definitely going away to an over-the-shoulder shot where with her and Kristen where I would see the monitor. So I have to have this moment on this monitor in this from this section. It was like um, three-dimensional chess. It was like four-dimensional chess. So I don't recommend it. Don't make movies with security monitors. The previous was helpful with security monitors in that there's only so many angles you can do on them. And then after that, it wasn't, we couldn't be that specific in advance as to what people would do. So we kind of had to uh, have the actors walk through and see the scene and film the scene, and then we could go and videotape the scene. A lot of that stuff changed, especially the scenes with the three guys. A lot of that changed because they would go, well, I'm going to go over here, and I'm trying to get away from him, and I'm trying to have a little secret conversation with him over here. And there were a lot of like little asides in their interactions that made it impossible to sort of previs. Strangely enough, Kristen, she didn't work that many days with the guys. It was kind of like about a week, week and a half, maybe two. We did the final kind of fight at the end, a lot of which Kristen has doubled. And then we would bring her in at the end of the day, have her flop into the fireplace and scream. A lot of it was like picking up pieces of Kristen, but shooting a lot of it with Rachel, who was her stunt double. When we started this movie, um, Kristen was... 11 and she probably grew three and a half inches in the seven months that it took to make this movie she started out about an, an inch and a half shorter than jody and ended up being a little bit taller than jody by the time we wrap shooting <laughs> and we had so many shots that we'd gone back in to pick up in our last three days of insert shooting to We'd shot a couple of close-ups of Kristen, and you would cut them into the movie, and you would just go, who is that person? It doesn't look anything like that little girl anymore. This is another scene um, that we reshot so we could see 
Dwight pick up the fingers in the over-the-shoulder. We, we shot a different version of this scene months after we wrapped. And we came back and we had built just the doorway and the of the panic room. And it was funny because Kristen just looked so different, we couldn't use it. There's a big difference between 11 and 12. It's pretty amazing. I would never have anticipated it. I often liken a movie crew and the making of a movie as, as it's like a it's like a team in their season. And it's difficult, you know, once you sort of set a pace or you set a the relationships on a set take on a kind of hopefully a productive momentum. And when you start and stop and you have to go back and reshoot stuff. We did we did a lot of reshooting. We had a lot of problems with uh Panavision and their lenses. We had a lot of equipment failure and we ended up reshooting days of material on this movie for technocrane slopping technocranes lenses that would go out of alignment and lose focus when they were tilted down a certain number of degrees nicole getting hurt we had uh, makeup problems with certain things uh, we had staging problems you know we rewrote some scenes and went back and redid them so we could get other information so we reshot we probably nine days we had uh, 15 days of stuff that we had to reshoot when we lost nicole but we had probably nine days of other stuff just technical stuff and when you're trapped in one house and you have to go back and redo things that you've already done and redo them and redo them it becomes really hard on people you got 90 people there who are all kind of like, they don't feel like they're making any progress. They're caught in frozen molasses, and everybody's nerves get frayed. I think on this movie we had two or three instances where <laughs> where people had to be escorted to their cars by security because they were so at their wit's end. It's an enormously complex movie, and it took its toll, and there were a lot of people left in its wake. It's like a football season or a basketball season. You know, you discover, you know, how deep your bench is. People go down and people who are expected to perform at a certain level, things get in the way of that. And some people rise to the occasion and, you know, you win some, you lose some, and some are rained out. And on any given day, you're trying to not only do the work, but you're trying to accomplish something at a certain level. And you're, it's not always possible. There are games during the you know, 100 days it takes to make a movie that you're going to lose by two points. It's hard. There are scenes, you know, I watch this movie now, there are scenes I just, I beat my head, my forehead pink, thinking, my God, what, the, what was I thinking? Like, that was so, I so dressed up and nowhere to go. It's, it was so overly overbaked. I mean, I've only made five movies now, four movies, I don't know, five movies. So I haven't really made that many movies. I mean, by the time Hitchcock was my age, he'd made like 40 movies. So, it's, you know, Spielberg's made 35 or something like that. The one thing I've learned, and, and of course it's totally disingenuous, is that maybe the way to do it is to set a pace. Maybe you literally take the first three days of shooting and you schedule it knowing, you schedule all the stuff you just don't give a shit about. And you shoot it as fast as you can so that everybody kind of goes, oh, my God, that's the pace we're going to be working at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then 
you go back and you reshoot it at the end of the schedule somewhere because it's stuff that you never really you never really but you kind of get everybody used to a way of working and I started this movie off you know with so much previs and pre-production and meticulousness that we kind of hit this pace of you know we were getting 10 setups a day 10 two camera setups a day you would think that that's enough but but this movie ended up being like over 2,000 setups so we used every single day I mean we were literally behind the eight ball the entire time and it's amazing to think you know you shoot a movie for you know well first you know 100 days you would think I made seven in probably 65 days or 67 days and this movie just it, there was like every time you shoot a day there was like another day's worth of inserts to do it was bogged but you know you learn that stuff you know in order to truly be terrified when Dwight's climbing all over her and throttling her she has to really be fucked up she has to really be she has to really be embroiled in that I like that they all pulled together and did everything that they could and that it necessitated one person changing course in order to deal with the truly evil guy. That, you know, that Burnham had to stop what he was doing and come back. I don't remember what the original script had in it. I don't know whether Meg kills Raoul in the first script. I know that in my discussions with Kep, pretty much from the beginning, I said, look, if this woman is going to go through all of this, you can't have her kill this guy at the end because as much as it is a catharsis for the audience, it seems like, it seems immoral. I mean, it would make more sense to have her daughter do it or somebody else. I think Burnham was always intended to be the guy who sort of embroil him to the point where he ended up having to betray his uh, compatriot. It just felt to me that if Jody had to shoot uh, Dwight at the end of the movie, you know, then to cut to them in the park, it just seemed sort of, I don't know, immoral. She hits him in the head with a sledgehammer, like, well, you know, what more does a girl gotta do? It just seemed to me like they were going to need enough therapy to overcome what they actually had to go through, that if she had to do all of this and execute somebody, it would just make it too terrible. But, you know, there's there different schools of thought on that. A lot of people thought we soft-pedaled it and made a big mistake by not allowing the audience their blood catharsis. Test screenings went fine. I don't think this movie was ever designed to be Jaws. It's not particularly heroic, and it's not particularly an everyman, and it's not particularly, it's not that kind of a summer movie. You know, it's hard to kind of relate to her because anybody who can buy a $6 million house on a whim is not somebody you're apt to run into at the AMC 14. So it's hard to relate to her in that in that respect but I think also I just felt like it should be grubbier and, and not so such a nice neat little bow I could have told you before we ever screened the movie for an audience that they wanted to see Jody shoot Dwight but that wasn't the story we'd written and ultimately I don't think it's as potent a story I like the notion of Burnham 
doing what's right and paying a price for doing it. And I liked how sloppy it was. And I liked the fact that, you know, the family doesn't get back together at the end. They go through this horrible thing and then they're on their own. I thought that was sort of potent. We tested the movie. It was all handled by the um, Columbia marketing distribution people. And I s remember saying specifically, let's be really careful about showing this movie to an audience saying, from the director of Seven and Fight Club and starring the Academy Award-winning actress and star of Silence of the Lambs. You know, it's you're going to be promising a kind of a movie that's different than what this is. This movie is an entertainment. This movie is designed as a sort of fastball down the center of the plate. And it should have, be rough around the edges and it should be a little uncompromised and it should be a little harder to love. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they went out and said, do you want to see the new movie from the director of Seven and Fight Club starring the star of Silence of the Lambs. And they had a bunch of people there who were expecting to see Seven crossed with Fight Club crossed with Silence of the Lambs. And so this movie was too light for them. And that was a lot of the comments that we heard. You know, if you're going to make this kind of an entertainment, you should have Forrest get away and let's have... It's that same old thing you get with a focus group, which is... A little bit of power is a little too much power. If people wanted to choose the ending of their movies, movies would be a lot cheaper because you wouldn't have to get people who make movies to make them. You could get anybody to make them. And the fact is, is that sometimes what the audience wants is not the best thing for the story in, in the end, you know? And it can be different for, you know, if you screen a movie at four in the afternoon, there's a different expectation for that two-hour period than there is if you screen a movie at 10 o'clock at night. It's just, a, it's a different thing. You can't, you know, you're never going to please everybody and you're never going to give everyone what they want. So you kind of have to be able to go, okay, well, this is a valid criticism and this isn't. The um, definitely kind of threw everybody at the studio and they wanted desperately to reshoot the ending so that Forrest got away. But I couldn't really stomach that. It just seemed seemed like it would be wussing out. If there was anything that we learned from the test screening of this movie specifically, it was that we didn't have to dot all the I's as specifically as we thought. That the audience was willing to roll with it and that, and that if positioned as a movie movie, they were willing to suspend the necessary disbelief in order to make this ride work. But you know, the movie was pretty, I think our first cut was 157 or something. I think it only came down like four minutes, two minutes or something. The value of any kind of a preview screening is to see your movie and see the backs of 400 people's heads. So you can see where they're getting bored. You can see where they're confused. You can see when they get restless. You can see, you can feel all that stuff. You don't actually, you don't have to put an e-meter on everybody in the audience. You can get it. I mean, you know, you're a reasonably perceptive individual. You can sit in the back of a theater and watch a movie that you made with an audience and know the stuff that you can change and stuff that you can't change. And, and you have a really good idea of the material that's available and you can kind of feel when you're losing him. So all that stuff, I think it's valuable for that. I think it's valuable to sit there and watch people watch your movie because at some point you're going to have to. And you can learn from them. And, and it doesn't matter how intricately something's planned or how beautifully it's carried off if the audience doesn't understand it. 
and they gotta they have to be able to understand it or enough of them have to be able to understand it in order to make it a viable commercial proposition but aside from that i mean i think it is the byproduct of our kind of corporate culture and the vertical integration of media companies where we sit there and we go we can put it in front of a focus group and they can tell us what's the best way to present the idea that we initially loved to them if you're going in looking for them to save you and to give you something that you would never have occurred to you it's probably not going to happen and quite honestly a movie is a movie it's like at the time you do the rough cut you're going to refine it you're going to make it better but that's pretty much what it is you know you're not going to take the leprechaun and turn it into chicago with a couple more weeks of of editing and no matter how much you know the audience goes it would really be great if they sang and danced